Hello and welcome to Activate, a show for mobile marketers by mobile marketers. I'm Johannes Haupt, a senior data scientist at Remerge. And today we're here for another look into the technical side of marketing. I'll be talking to Suresh Pillai, who is the VP Data at Beat. Hi, Suresh. Welcome to the show. Hi, Johannes. Thank you for welcoming today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're a theoretical physicist by, by training. So what took you to customer analytics and, and data science? Yes, so I'm a theoretical physicist. I've always loved math and physics from my childhood. I did research in complexity science or complex systems, which is understanding how systems composed of many interacting agents emerge with new types of behavior at a higher level, which we'll can talk about today as well in terms of doing data science. And that could be anything from statistical mechanics in traditional physics or ants foraging for food or humans in networks and economics and society. So it could be birds flocking. So many systems where the individuals acting together, typically with simple rules, when you look them as a system, then you get some complex behavior that you wouldn't anticipate from the simple rules. And the important thing to know is that when you're understanding such systems, you don't look at the atomic low level because there would be too many things to, to follow and track. And actually, you wouldn't see the big picture. So there's a new level of understanding. And so you need to analyze the system at a higher level. Interesting. That sounds a lot like the markets that we deal with. And like when you talk about complexity, I'm pretty sure that we have two levels here. One would be the customers themselves, right, that are incredibly complex human beings. And then actually another level of complexity, the uh, systems themselves that we build, thinking now about uh, kind of daily, daily data science work themselves, incredibly complex systems where things work together, models work together and filters work together, human optimization in the whole mix. So that itself is also a complex system to me, is that? Yeah, it's true. I mean, actually, I've, I mean, I think I've separated myself from traditional data scientists just from my physics background and I've approach problems this way, and we've achieved a lot of success. And I do talk about it a lot. The When you're thinking about a, any system, but especially a complex system, uh, and you're given a problem, you need to decide which level or granularity you choose to model and understand that system. So different levels enable different insights, but it's also a practical thing. If it's a really complex system, uh, it may be too much to understand it at the atomic level. What I say is you can't predict anything from the atomic level because there's too much going on. And we know this in physics too. And so you may have to go to a higher level. But also in some cases, like ride hailing, maybe you need to simulate the whole city with all the passengers, all the drivers, the competitors. That's atomic low level. Uh, but then what are you looking for? If it's so complex and you don't know what you're looking for and you run a simulation, then what? So obviously we need some higher level concepts. Now, of course, we're not completely stupid. We understand what ride hailing is about. There's things we're looking at, right? I mean, what's the time between a, a rider requesting a ride and receiving the ride? Um, what is the utilization of a car? And there's these higher level concepts. So typically with a complex system, you need some top-down guidance first. You need to understand it and you get generate some hypothesis and then you may run your simulation or so on and see the specific insights for your system. And this is not, I would say not known, but people don't necessarily grasp this. So in economics, you have top-down economic metric models and you have 
bottom-up micro models. In physics, we know the same thing. In science in general, right? You don't do biology by doing physics. You don't need to know all those low-level details of atoms, molecules, and so on. And if you tried to, you would get nowhere uh, because there's new levels of understanding at the biology, which is at the organism level. So we know this. We just haven't thought deeply about it. But anyways, I'm getting too far into science now. (laughs) No, so it's so very interesting. I get I get the point, right? You wouldn't look at the brain to understand why somebody buys a, as a product, right? You need the, the human as a concept, and then the group could be a concept. That's really interesting. I wanted to ask you something else because I know that before before you did the simulations at at Beat, you're also looking at uplift models, and in a way, I would see that also as a different level of complexity, because usually. When we think about evaluating a marketing campaign, we go for the average, right? Say, does the campaign work or does it not work? But we can go a level deeper and then say, does it, who does it work for? For which groups does it work for? Which individuals does it work for? So can you tell me a little bit more about what you did there with the uplift modeling or incrementality or what's your preferred term? Maybe let's start there. Yeah. So, I mean, at the top level in marketing, it's really about measuring incrementality, right? What's the positive impact of our marketing endeavors, whether it's a campaign, a CRM, and so on. But incrementality has different levels. Again, I'll use the word granularity, right? I, at the high level, I can just say if an overall campaign or an overall program or even an overall channel, you can go even all the way to a channel in general is SEM, Google Paid Search, incremental. You can just give a number, 1.2. But And that's fine. Your CFO, that's what they need to know for budgeting and even your CMO. But if we want to be intelligent, then we need to get into more detail. So we can go to incrementality at a high level. And then there are many different ways of getting into details. You could do uh, an A-B test. You could do an A-B-C test. Or you can break down your A-B test into different segments, right? This segment responded this way versus this segment responded that way if you have enough signal. So that's one level down. Uplift modeling takes a similar view, but the segments are very specific. Rather than just saying, all right, my campaign had an overall uplift of, say, 20%, what we ask is who was specifically responding to it. So getting a bit more detail. So, And I think there's different terms. I'll use the terms sure things, persuadables, lost causes, and sleeping dogs. So these are the four segments we break down our response into. Sure things are people that would have bought Let's just say it's a purchase. They would have bought anyway. So you don't need to to target them. So it's... These are, sorry, these are kind of the organic conversions, right? These are people when I don't send anything, they're going to install anyway or they're going to buy anyway. Exactly. They're going to... These are the sure things. They're going to buy regardless. Uh, and they would buy regardless if you sent them a campaign message or not. So you don't need to target them. Then you get the persuadables. And these are the ones you do. So these are the ones you can convince, right? The campaign has a positive incremental impact. Then you have the lost causes. They're not going to buy no matter what, right? So without or with a message, they're not going to buy. So again, there's no point trying to convince them. That's wasted money, right? These are the people where I, I spend money, but I don't get nothing. I get, don't get anything in return. Right. So short things, zero incremental. They're going to buy anyways. Persuadables, 100% incremental because they, they, re, they require that nudge to buy. Loss causes, 100% non-incremental. So it's wasted money, right? And then you have what some people call sleeping dogs. These are the people that don't want to be bothered, right? So by 
bothering them with advertising, you may have possibly actually turned them off. They may have been going to buy before, but now you've annoyed them. So not only it's the worst situation. So not only have you wasted money, you've lost revenue uh, as well on the final product. So Uplift Modeling says, let's break down that overall uplift into these four so that I know only to target the persuadables. And there's different ways of doing this. Back in the, in the days of starting, you actually would have two experimental data sets. So you can think of it just about, you know, a two by two on multiplying to get these four segments, right? So you either had some existing data or you have some synthetic data or you have to run experiments that are designed properly so that when you overlap them, you can get these four segments. Typically these days, we use a combination of uh, some experimental data, an A-B test and a propensity model. So let's step back actually, if you don't do uplift modeling or you typically build a propensity model, you say, all right, what's the chance of someone converting or buying this? And you try to target somewhere in the middle or higher ones. Let me stop you there. So when we say propensity, propensity is the, the chance that somebody will do the action, right? Purchase something or sign up for something or... Yes, the probability to do something, right? So typically we say propensity to buy and so or convert or other any other action. And that propensity will go from zero to one, but it doesn't give you this extra information of it's always a challenge if you have a propensity model. Do I target the low probability and try to convince them? Avoid the high probability because they're already going to buy. You don't actually know that detail. That's an extra dimension that doesn't exist in that. Right. I want the change in behavior, right? I don't want, it's kind of complicated, right? If I target the people who are less likely, I might get people that are unlikely to buy in any case. If I take the ones, those are the lost causes, but there could be persuadables on the low probability as well. There could be sure things in the high probability, but there could also be sleeping dogs in the high probability. So you don't have that extra dimension. So you can use your propensity. You uh, Typically, you may target in the middle, and there may be a positive impact, but you could do better. And so you need some experimental data to understand the response and that could be an A-B experiment or other type of experiment. And then you have the model as well. And when you combine them, and I'm, I'm talking very generically here, and some people may say, hey, wait, that's not exactly right. But I don't know the audience to be fully technical. But you need to combine two things. And in the old days where you combine two data sets, here we're combining a model uh, and a data set to get this uh, classification into the four segments. And you could think about it that you actually build a propensity model based on the experimental results to find the features that identify sure things versus persuadables versus lost causes versus sleeping dogs versus the old way of just building a propensity model, a simple one-dimensional propensity model, do you buy or not? Now we're going to build a propensity model that the, it identifies the features and behaviors that split these groups. That makes sense, right? That's the question that typically we'd be asking. We'd be asking which kind of people can we impact by our marketing? Who should I target? Right? Don't ask who's going to buy. I'm asking who should I play my ad to so that they would change and then buy, even though they before they wouldn't have. Right? This kind of counterfactual in there. I think that makes it super super interesting. Right now, we're suddenly talking about changing behavior and not just predicting naturally occurring behavior. But we get this 
change. Exactly. And uplift modeling is also useful, for example, for us in ride hailing, where you don't have a necessarily a baseline, right? I mean, typically A-B testing is based on test control and you have a baseline of not doing anything. But in ride hailing, for example, we have incentives for drivers going on all the time. There isn't a natural baseline to compare to. So here's where uplift modeling can become more useful as well and where you combined a, a predictive model with some data and to assign where there's actual incremental lift. Could you explain that in a little bit more detail? So I understand um, you have uh, actions going on all the time. That sounds similar also to other settings where I always have some kind of marketing going on, but I never turn it off completely. Exactly. So, I mean, it's not like, say, a simple, let's say, e-commerce where you give a voucher if uh, a churn model predicts somebody is going to uh, to churn. So in that case, you know, it's a sparse situation where you give a voucher once in a while. But there are other situations where marketing is part of the game, I would say. Someone is always receiving a message or a signal, and that means there's no baseline. The business as usual is fairly complex, and there you need different approaches, right? So whether you view it as uplift modeling, or even if you ask someone about causal modeling or more modern experimental techniques, what we typically do is you have to mix some sort of propensity model based on your historical data, along with some fresh data from an experiment. You need them both in order to understand what was incremental. And, and this, that's just a general philosophy. There's different ways of approaching it in both uplift, causal modeling, and, other, and just pure experimentation where there is no baseline. Nice. Let me try to make sense of yours. There's different terms that I use a lot, and I'm very interested in uh, who's using what term and if there's actually differences or if this is just the same concept over and over. So I think experimental data and doing experiments, that this is the, the foundation to get any kind of um, causal effect, that's... Uh, pretty clear to me. Do you, do you think there's a difference in how people use uplift modeling, incrementality, and then you said causal models or causal machine learning? You hear that a lot nowadays. What do you think is the difference between those? Or is there any at all? I think it depends on the situation. I have to be careful. I don't want to say anything wrong in public. What we already said, uplift is very specific, right? It tries to get some granularity on the groups in terms of who was persuadable, who wasn't going to buy anywhere. That's typically uplift. I mean, we use the term uplift to give the overall uplift, but uplift modeling is referring to having that next level of granularity so that you target really the ones that give you the biggest bang for your buck, right? The ones that will give you the most incrementality rather than just running a campaign saying, okay, Overall, the uplift was positive, so I'll keep doing it, right? I mean, you're optimizing it one level lower. Causal is a dangerous word. When you say causal modeling or causal impact, you're doing something specific that does require some experimental data to say that this treatment did cause it. And so there's different levels, again, of... Um, if, is it at the individual level? Is it at the group level? and so on. I, yeah, actually, the terms that we like to use in the team to be a bit more specific is always talking about the average treatment effect, avoiding also maybe the causal part, something that's a bit more more relaxed, saying it's just the treatment effect that we get from the experiment. Then we talk about the average treatment effect as kind of this is whether the campaign as a whole worked, and then the uh, um, heterogeneous treatment effects to talk about different groups and uh, yeah, individualized if we want to really make sure that everybody understands we're talking about uh, user-level predictions here but usually heterogeneous to, to talk about different groups or um, segments of the user base where the campaign works better and other segments where the campaign works worse. So we're sticking there very closely with the literature. So if anybody is interested also marketing or 
econometrics, they would usually call it that. So it makes sense to search for that as well to get some more mathy papers if you're interested in that. <laughs> and then the other term is attribution, as we all know. There's an attribution means that I'm looking at a, a path in time and I need to attribute a specific value to events in that path. So that's, you know, Attribution has wide meanings, but typically we're in marketing interested in multi-touch attribution. Uh, there's multiple events. How do I attribute this value to those events that could be channels, they could be interactions, uh, so on? How would you do that? Or do you have any tips for people? Um, because this is this is such a big issue, I feel, that we have in marketing that you have multi-touch attribution, even um, let's say on a on a mobile on mobile marketing, you you can show multiple ads to the same user, right? So usually a user sees like ten ads and then they convert. So they have even if you only had a single DSP that shows these ten ads, even then it would be hard to say which one of these caused the cost of purchasing the ad or was it the sum of these that cost it? But usually you have multiple partners. You might also run this on a social network and then you have different channels also. Do you have any tips for people looking to make sense of all the of attribution in this complex setting? So I'll talk about I mean some general tips. And this is something my team and I discovered at eBay. It's almost 10 years ago. So it's amazing that we still talk about it. As we all know, marketing is a pretty vague topic and there's a lot of things are done wrong because it's very difficult. I still consider attribution and marketing analytics probably one of the most difficult topics in machine learning because it's you don't have the full data. It's very vague. There's many multiple interpretations. But multi-touch attribution, I mean, back in the old days, and I think there's still people who do it, use this last-touch attribution uh, and similar models where you know it's wrong. It's, it's standard, I would say, so in the industry. So mostly what we see is going from there. We had a lot of insights 10 years ago, and it's still amazing that I have to explain it 10 years later. I really should start a company doing it. But again, it's a very difficult topic because there's it's a lot to convince. And sometimes I'm not sure the mental effort <laughs> would translate into financial effort because it's a tricky topic. And even when people know the answer, that doesn't mean they, they follow it because there's organizational structures that are going against it. But what can be for sure is when we went from things like last touch, then people tried to go to what they thought were more complex models, but which were still fair static models. So I, I even call them toy models, and I'll explain why. I can go to some combination of first touch, last touch, intermediate touches. People tried things about reverse decay in time. The most recent is more impactful and so on. And you can look at all these models, which are static models. What I mean by static is the rule is the same. So no matter which customer there was, which product there was, when it was, I still apply this same rule. Some percentage waiting to the first, some percentage waiting to the last, some to the in-between. And there's an infinite number of static rules we can make there. Now, in terms of eBay way back then, and I think in terms of most large companies with large heterogeneous customers, with heterogeneous products and heterogeneous experiences, we found that all these models gave the same answer overall. So, And when I overall, I mean, if you aggregate it over all your conversions and events, it doesn't matter which one of these toy models you use, you get the overall incrementality of your channels to be the same. So you mean when you say the same, all the channels are the same, or no matter which tone model you use, you get the same results, kind of same ranking of the same results. And actually, we for us uh, specifically, they were no different than random attribution. So that means they were all useless. And it actually, it makes sense, right? Why would 
the first channel always have 24% impact. I mean, if you think about it, it makes no sense at all. I mean, <laughs> and why would the last channel always have 33 or something? So the, any static weighting makes absolutely no sense because it depends on the intent of the customer, their mood. And actually, if you think about it in general and you really expand on that, there really is no static rule for attribution. It's very much customer dependent, the product dependent, time dependent. So really, I think we can all agree attribution only works dynamically, where you need to assess it depending on all the, the parameters that are describing the path, the situation, the product. But that's a very difficult problem then. And then people jump to, obviously, I think what no, no, most natural thing is Markov chains, trying to look for patterns. But the problem is they actually haven't done any better than these simple static rules, if I can be very blunt, because you're still trying to look for patterns in the channels. So you're always, and this is what people were doing, they were doing advanced machine learning on the configurations and the path configurations, right? So what's the, you know, it's uh, combinatorics on the channels. But again, why would you think the channel matters so much? It's saying the channel is more stronger in signal and impact than the consumer, the product, their mood, their intent, and saying that on aggregate, I can always tell you something about attribution based on the pattern of channels. Maybe that matters in certain businesses, especially if you're a new business. Maybe Google search has a strong impact at the beginning on getting your um, attention or you finding the information. So I'm not saying it's completely wrong. Maybe at a high level on simple instances, yes, there could be some patterns. And even in general, there may be some patterns. Maybe one channel after the other, there is some indicative increase in incrementality. But to then generalize this, to look for generalized patterns and apply this for a large complex business, it's bound to get you nowhere. So you have to be very objective, right? And without giving away the full answer, you have to look at a customer. And then this is the most important thing. When we say customer first and customer-based analytics and data science, it's true. The customer matters. You need to look at their behavior. So each case is different. So you need to have a fully dynamic model that's assessing their behavior off-site, on-site, and coming with a, an evaluation. So you build, if you say, a dynamic model, you're following the user and you're trying to to what, predict their next uh, moves or kind of uh, build the probabilities moving from one state to the other one? And we come back to propensity again. So there's that word again. And so you do need some sort of propensity model. And I'll leave it at this. I was so happy in, I think it was three or four years ago in Berlin, I was just at a little meetup and... I forget who it was, but they said, you know what, they summarized this. We had this discussion. I was like, really how everyone is doing attribution wrong and there's agencies selling you products and, and there's so much money exchanged on everyone just doing it wrong. But really, attribution comes down to propensity. Attribution is propensity. And let's leave it there. <laughs> All right, got it. I definitely lo love that love that opinion. I'd love, love to, to hear about that because I have exactly the same experience that the stuff that was status quo five years ago, six years ago, when I started my PhD, is still the same. Same after I completed it, even though there's all this research, also in the marketing research literature, right, and all these uh, papers coming out, and even now we get papers also, I think, from, from Google, for example, or even five-year-old papers by Google saying this is how you evaluate incrementality, but not even on their platforms, you really do that. Right? People don't really seem to be using that a lot since they're stuck in the... No, I mean, it's difficult. So you need a lot of data, right? So, I mean, we could do it at eBay, companies like Amazon can do it, Zalando, because you have a full 
you have extensive data on your customers, you can do it. If you don't, or if you're in an industry where there's few touch points and there's not much on-site behavior, then you don't really get to understand your customers. And you do need different methods. Or you have to admit that you can't do it. There are cases where you can't do it. And you have to say, you know what, I can't build a good enough multi-touch attribution model. But when you can, then it is you have to do it objectively and dynamically. And when I say objectively is don't look for patterns in channels. I, I think... I forget when I was at eBay, even just looking at high-level incrementality multipliers, we talked about different levels of granularity. Attribute, multi-touch attribution is at the lowest level. You're tracking actual events. But as we said before, you can just say, okay, SEM is overall, for my business, incremental 10%. It's a high-level number that you're missing out on all the details. But even to say that is, it's missing the customer. So we talk about exporting your organizational structure when developing products. We shouldn't export our internal structure about marketing channels as mattering to an individual, right? When I come to a website, I don't care which channel I came through. I don't think about it consciously. There's no reason to organize how you measure incrementality based on channels. Channels don't exist. Customers exist. That's super interesting. Also, you say this is exactly right. This is exactly how the marketing department is structured. And that's why it's evaluated this way and why we need it evaluated this way. But I see from a customer perspective, it really doesn't, doesn't matter where you clicked on the banner first or whether you got a coupon or whatever, whatever, whatever. Let me connect that to something that's now been bothering everybody for at least a year. So since you say that the user is the most important part, but then on, Mobile platforms, this is exactly what we're losing now with the iOS updates, right? And they're not getting a unique user identifier anymore for our apps, both as advertisers, but not even the, um, yeah, depending on whether you have a login or not, then you still have a user identifier or you might not, or you might get it only at some point. Do you, have you thought about that, right? I know that probably in an app framework where people sign up for a ride, you have to have a login. So I'm assuming that a lot of the users that you have do have a unique identifier and you can still kind of follow them through the process and then build some of these models. Have you, has that been a problem? Have you thought about how to deal? What does it change for you without you might not have a user ID now immediately after the install? Yeah, so here we have to separate tracking within your app and then tracking outside your app. I mean, you're still able to track within your app. And when we talk about propensities and so on, that data is still there. Tracking across devices and different experiences, yes, it'll be a new challenge now, right? If, if we're missing that data. So either you have to go to a higher level on everything, you can't always have individual tracking and you just have to live with that and think about going from overall incrementality down to audiences, down to segments, down to micro-segments. And that's still possible. And it actually drives a deeper understanding of your business. Of course, with machine learning, you can also then go back to proxies of prediction, right? Can who Do I think this is the same person? And we've already been doing that for the last five years, at least, for cross-device tracking. So we'll become more intelligent about our tracking using proxies and predictive models. Interesting. Do you think there's a role for for marketing mixed models in, in this whole thing? Because uh, there seems to me, for me, for me, there seems to be a connection between any of the aggregate models where we typically put them into the uplift or incrementality sense and say we want to predict, let's say, the after or before I start a campaign, I get a difference in installs and I could say this is 
on the temporal level, right? I could say there's a hopefully causal effect, but at least there seems to be some treatment effect. But look at before, after, I can also make more complicated designs and try to predict what would be the counterfactual and then uh, compare that to the actuals after starting the campaign. So something that we've been looking into. And this, I think, gets us again closer to the traditional marketing mix models where you have this huge model looking at the developments over time with maybe the added element that people are now looking more into experiments and say, in the traditional marketing mix models, we just looked back and we compared what happened and can we do an estimate of that. But if we combine it with experiments, I think there might be some role. Do you have an opinion on that or do you see, as I said, any role of uh, from traditional marketing mix models? Is that something that you think will survive for the next five years or so? I mean, marketing mix, based on the discussion we've had so far, it's really just an aggregate view, right? That's all it is. It's what we said, what I just said now. If I can say that SEM is overall plus 20% incremental, that's all marketing mix does, is try to say at the highest level how much overall average impact do different channels have on my traffic or revenue? So it's no different. The difference is it puts them together in a model so you can have some interaction. And it's typical machine learning. In, in this, it's more statistical, traditional statistical, and assigning what's the relative weights of those. So it's looking at that. So it's a high-level top-down model, right? It's not a, it's not a bottom-up. So it's no different than... Uh, very aggregate measurement. And of course, with more modern techniques, we can input different data, right? So you could input experimental data uh, and augment it uh, and make the modeling much more precise. So you have historical data. I mean, experimental data is still historical data. These are just different types. There's no difference. They're just more controlled, right? I mean, when you look at just pure historical data, it's not controlled. You can get more precision out of your model by controlling the data. Uh, and that will... Under the hood somewhere, there's some causal impact. It's, of course, it's not coming out in the marketing mix, but by controlling how you generate the data you put into marketing mix, you give it a boost without knowing it. You won't know what it is, but you will give it a boost because you're putting better data into the model. The only thing I can say about marketing mix, it's like attribution, one of these things that's done very poorly. It has a background in... Uh, fast-moving consumer goods, which is very different from online high-activity events. My only comment is, because I spent a lot of time doing marketing mix in one role, is typically there were these linear models. Now, the whole point of a marketing mix, especially for things like TV advertising and non, let's call them non-pure digital events, is that you have to understand things like saturation, right? If I see the same ad five times, there's a point where it doesn't have any more impact on me. And if you think about a linear model, by definition, can't give you that. And so I used to hear people saying, oh, but I've got the saturation curve out of a linear model. And I'm like, well, that is actually impossible. What they were doing is actually, because you're adding, overlaying different linear curves from going back in time. And if you do that, then of course you can get a nonlinear curve out of it. But it's not getting to the root of it. You as an individual have an individual saturation. So how do you put that? And so that means you need to put nonlinear models in. But nonlinear models are difficult on such a very high level 
model, right? I mean, to get put in that detail is difficult. So you may have a more meaningful model, but then you need to tame that nonlinearity, that tail end of that curve. How do I get that precise? Especially because the tail end of the curve has less data, which is where it starts to wave around a bit because it's highly... Uh, highly variable. And this is probably why people stuck with linear models. Uh, they're more comfortable with the answer, but a lot of the output it was putting out was a bit, I would say, fake. But this is where I think you can be very scientific about it. You have to put what you want out of the model into the model. So if I want to understand saturation, I put it in and I ascribe a parameter to it. If I want delayed impact, right? Because different business models, if I'm a click conversion model, then the impact is immediate. Did I click? Boom, traffic done. If I'm booking a, a, a trip for a travel, then the impact of my marketing may be one month, two months. Then I need to put a delayed impact into the model. So for difficult things, especially if you are going to go the nonlinear way, you need to put it in and put a parameter and tune your model to determine what those parameters are rather than just waiting for it to jump out. Now, in these days with deep learning and so on and the different types of models we can build, we can really tune multiple parameters much better than we could build this. It seems to me also to require that um, you then have a, an excellent communication between the people who understand what you would need to put in, like to have a good expectation of people on the ground to say, this is, we expect there to be a delayed effect. Uh, so we want to put it in and we expect there to be all other sorts of effect that um, we see in the user behavior and a good connection to the person who actually builds the model because usually it seems to me like there's, uh, this is difficult, right? Building a custom custom model that has something like delayed effect. It's not something you just learn on YouTube and then <laughs> go into them. No. And so this is where, I mean, you have to be scientific about it. And that's where my scientific background, that's why we were successful at these marketing mix models, because we frame the model exactly what we needed into something to get the answer and then for it to evolve as we learned. I used to say you can't just machine learn everything. Now, some modern machine learners would disagree with me because we're at the point where we're even using machine learning to do physics, right, to on very complex data sets, whether it's uh, astronomy or materials, where it's impossible for a human to really ever see those patterns. But I don't think machine learning is at the point of getting higher level general structures and insights that evolve, like sort of pure scientific model. And that's the same for marketing or uh, product analytics. In some cases, yes knowing what you're doing is important. <laughs> That's very nice. Maybe let's uh, go to a higher level <laughs> again. And let me, as a last question, ask you, what's the most interesting insights you've seen from incrementality models? What really surprised you? What changed your view on the product or on how customers are acting? Is there any case that uh, really yeah, remains with you? I think something that didn't actually come out of advanced modeling, but we used it in building a model in CRM, is that customers are more engaged after a conversion, in many cases, than before the conversion. So this is the concept of validation, especially in a case like in the old days of eBay, where you're bidding on items. But it can be even on a regular purchase that a customer will try to validate their purchase. And so this is a perfect time for you to engage the customer to say, yes, congratulations, you got the lowest price or you made the, the best purchase and then keep them for the next one. So I think people miss out on the leading up to the conversion, but also right after the conversion, there's a, 
a massive window of opportunity to engage the customer. And you can use that in your CRM strategies and your modeling. So knowing how to engage them, when exactly to engage them is when the machine learning comes in. You use the machine learning before for the exact same reason, when to message them, what message, understand where they are in that purchase journey, something we did very successfully at eBay. But actually right after as well is a good opportunity to segment, predict, and target your customers on how to message them to keep them engaged for the future. That's a really, very valuable insight. And I guess it makes sense. I mean, I catch myself also looking at the same product afterwards and check, like, was that really the best choice? But it's good to know, to have a reminder um, that also like the, the current purchase is always just the one in a series, usually, right? And if you have, like, if you are able to, re- to retain your customers, the current uh, interaction is just one in a long line, hopefully, into the future. So you don't give up after you had the first success. And this is, we come back to multiple levels of engagement, right? I'm engaging on convincing them to make that purchase, but then I also need to convince them on a higher level to remain loyal to the brand, maybe remain loyal to a vertical. Do I need to think about convincing them to switch to a different vertical? So there you already have three levels of engagement with a customer. So your CRM strategy and your models, maybe you need three models or maybe you can get them out of one model. Typically, you would need three different models. As I said at the start of the conversation, those are different levels of engagement and insight and they require different models and engagement uh, with the customer. Great. That's a good last uh, point, I would say, for, for today's uh, show. Amazing that we went all the way from talking about uplift, uh, first complexity to uplift on the individual level, then uplift on the on more different granular levels, higher level, lower level, marketing mix models, and then back again to granularity. Is there anything else, Suresh, that you would like to share with our listeners? As we always say, we're hiring. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm looking actually for people who understand this concept of non-predictability simulation complex systems for ride-hailing. So if there's anyone out there, both analysts and machine learning data scientists, we're looking for those to optimize our systems that they're posted on LinkedIn. And what else should we talk about? More interesting things, not always analytics. We can talk about craft beer if you want. Some people may know I am a partner in a craft beer bar in Zurich called the International Beer Bar. So for me, data and beer are the two things I like to think about. Nice. And I also know that if people are more interested and want to talk to you more, that you're a member of the Mentoring Club, is that right? So... That's right. Thanks for pointing that out. So Mentoring Club was started by two colleagues at Omeo, my previous uh, company, and it's grown quite big. And that's been great for reaching out to people actually across the world. I mean, many have been from Germany, but a lot have been from around the world looking from questions on transitioning from being an analyst to a data scientist, thinking about data strategy. It's been a wonderful experience and continues. So reach out to me. Uh, Rahul on my team, who is my head of BI Data Engineering, is also part of the mentoring club. And he's helping people with data engineering in their careers. So it's been a great experience. I know at Beat, we've started some internal mentoring as well. Mentoring is great because it really helps. I, I honestly, when I joined the mentoring club, I feel I didn't have enough mentoring when I was younger, both for academia especially. And I think, you know, no matter how good you are, it always helps to have someone to guide you, right? To grow into the spaces that you're unaware of. I think it's really about generating awareness, right? We we all have a limited world around us. And to expand, you need to either make mistakes or consciously explore those new spaces and a mentor can help that. Great. That's amazing. So if anybody, our guest today, Suresh Pillai, if anybody wants to hear more about these topics or other topics, you can find them on Mentoring Club. Suresh Pillai, VP Data at Veet. 
Thank you so much for um, sharing your insights today. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope to see you again, talk to you again. Thanks, Johannes. Yeah, and I'll be actually coming back to Berlin in a couple of weeks for a little bit of break. So maybe uh, good to see the old gang and people around Berlin as well. Amazing. Bye. Bye. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.